is one of our Monday uh, ladies that wrote this prayer, but it's beautiful. So would you bless the Lord's blessing on our time? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before your presence humbly. And you know the situation with the world. The world that you spoke into being is in great trouble and turmoil. Satan has unleashed his most diabolical and fierce rebellion against you and your people. He has deceived the rulers and the nations in that they have despised all that, you're, that you created for the good and for the blessing of mankind. But we know that all their plans of wickedness are destined for defeat and destruction. For you are sovereign and will never be defeated or overcome by any of Satan's schemes. You have limited the forces of evil to protect your people and will only use the wickedness to condemn them in the time of judgment. As you consider, Lord, all the strife and corruption and death that is taking place under the sun, strengthen our resolve to lift up the name of Jesus at all times and in all places. We know you are in complete control and we are comforted and encouraged because we know you do all things well for your glory and our good. Use us to proclaim Jesus Christ to the lost and thereby hasten your return to sit upon your righteous kingdom on earth, to set up your righteous kingdom on earth. Help us to understand all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But we are not to be afraid because Jesus is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And above all, keep us faithful in word and deed until Jesus calls us home. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Some of your prayers are just beautiful, and I'll be sharing them in the future. We all just keep on coming in. That's good. I knew the parking lot was full. Our lesson today is number 15 in our study of the early church from the book of Acts, and I have entitled the lesson, Happy to Suffer Shame for His Name. And as we read the passage, you'll understand where that title came from. We will be looking at Acts 5, if you want to open your Bibles. Actually, I'll be doing a little bit of a review of 4, so you might want to position yourself in Acts chapter 4. But for our lesson today, we'll be looking at Acts 5, verses 29 to 42. Here's our outline, okay? This took me half a day to get this outline, so I'm going to give it to you. You'll see it when you get your email lesson. But we're going to look at the defendant's reply, the devilish rage, the doctor's reasoning, the departing reward, and the disciples' resolve. Yay! <laughs> Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is actually the long answer. The whole chapter is a long answer to a question challenge that was asked in chapter 4 that never really got answered by those to whom it was asked. When Peter and John were first brought, after their first arrest, you know, they had healed the lame man, they went from the beautiful gate to Solomon's porch, and they, Peter preached a sermon, and in the middle of the sermon he was arrested, and they were brought before the Sanhedrin Council of Israel. They were told, they were threatened never to speak, never to teach again anymore in the name of Jesus, to which Peter responded with this question challenge that I'm speaking about. And it was in verse 19 of chapter 4, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, you men of this council, more than to God, judge ye, ye be the judges. The council did serve as the supreme court of Israel. It was their responsibility to make judicial decisions on spiritual matters concerning Israel and the Jewish people. So the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, was challenging them to declare a spiritual principle as to whether it was right in the sight of God to obey him or man when the two came into direct conflict with one another. And the men on that council avoided answering. They were expedient politicians really more than they were spiritual leaders. Have you ever noticed how good politicians can be at avoiding question, answers to questions? I just, I mean, they're, they're experts at it. 
I don't even know, understand how they do it. They're asked a direct question. Now, when you're asked a direct question, don't you feel kind of obligated to answer that question? But they don't answer that question. They just give their talking points or whatever they want to talk about. It's just incredible. But this council was just like, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So they were very good at avoiding questions. They did not answer the question. They completely ignored it, that challenge. Um, and what did they do? They threatened the men a little bit more, and then they let them go. Because, you see, they knew that the only right answer was that, of course, in the sight of God, it is better to obey him than man. And if they said, well, of course, you ought to obey God, what would the apostles have said? Well, that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> so they avoided the question. At the release and then the report of Peter and John, of what had happened in their arrest and as they stood before the council, they gave that report to the company of believers and what did that company of believers spontaneously do? They broke into praise and a prayer of praise to the despotes of heaven, the despot, the sovereign of heaven and earth. That was in verse 24. In light of the threats from their rulers, what did they ask? sovereign God to grant them all boldness, all boldness to proclaim his word. They had been threatened not to teach or preach or speak anymore in the name of Jesus, so they go ahead and pray for more boldness to do just exactly that. And then they ask for God to stretch forth his hand to perform signs and wonders in the name of his son. That was in verse 30. So was that a prayer that pleased God, weren't they really asking him for greater enablement to disobey the command of the men in authority over them? That's exactly what they were asking for, more empowerment to disobey the council. Would God himself answer the question that the council had ignored and not answered? Yes. And he answered it with an affirmation that literally shook the building in which the prayer was prayed. He answered their request to be able to obey the commission that was given to them by his son, the Great Commission. He answered it by giving them great power and great grace to be able to do so. And the result was that the church was even more united in her passion to witness of her resurrected Savior than even before. And she was also more united in her love toward one another and uh, even to the point of sharing everything with each other, their generosity. And then following a serious, can't get any more serious than this, but a serious chastening by God of a couple in the church who had both lied to and tempted the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and that was, of course, the, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Then the church was so full of great fear of the Lord <clears throat> that any fear of mere men, including the high priests and the Sadducees and that whole council, was minor in comparison. Their fear of man was minor to their fear of the Lord, which was a good thing. And so, again, the question about obeying God over and above men, when the two come into direct conflict, was, was very clear. The Lord was infinitely more to be reverenced and hearkened unto. <clears throat> well, we also learned that not only was there an explosion of mighty miracles, you know, signs and wonders and healings, but what else was there an explosion of? Church growth. For the first time, we read that there were multitudes, plural, of both men and women who were added to the Lord, added to the body of his church. <clears throat> that was in verse 14. Now I'm in chapter 5. So how much evidence could there be to the watching eyes of the Sanhedrin that it had been right for Peter and John and the others to have obeyed God rather than them? God was giving plenty of evidence, you know, by blessing them, church growth and miracles and all that. You know, it was an obvious answer from God that they had been right, that they were right in obeying God first. Masses of believers in the resurrected Jesus were meeting daily in Solomon's porch, which was exactly the place where Peter and John had been arrested. 
and they were meeting with the apostles who were doing exactly what Peter and John actually had told the Sanhedrin council that they had to do as his witnesses. You know, Jesus had, had groomed these men. He had handpicked them and he had groomed them for three and a half years and he allowed them to be his eyewitnesses of his resurrection for 40 days. He was with them. So as they told the council, we are not able not to speak the things which we have seen and heard. Much to the chagrin of the Sadducees, the crux of their whole message, the gospel, what was the crux of the whole thing? A resurrected Jesus, a resurrected Savior. The apostles had seen him alive, and so had many other people. 500 people had seen him alive. And it was by his power, the Lord's, resurrected Lord's power, and by his holiness, that not only had the lame man been healed, but that all of the miracles were being performed. The spirit-filled leaders of the growing Jesus sect, remember they haven't called it the church yet, it's called the sect of the Nazarene. The the leaders of that group were actually telling everyone, can you imagine? That would be really refreshing in our day, but they were actually telling everyone the truth. (laughs) How dare they speak the truth? (laughs) And it infuriated the Supreme Court of Israel, even though they knew that they were responsible for having killed Jesus You know, even though God had determined that from eternity past, they were held accountable for murdering his son, yet they were infuriated when these men were speaking that truth, that they were responsible, as were the people of Israel, for killing the Son of God. So these men, you know, they knew that truth, but they hated to hear it, and they were frightened. They were scared. Because if the numbers of people who believed that Jesus really was the Messiah, if that number of people kept growing, it would be... could be seriously dangerous for them, the council, because they might rise up and be very angry at them and stone them to death. They were actually afraid when they rearrested the apostles that that might happen. You know, people say, you killed our long-awaited Messiah? Stone them to death. So they're frightened. Besides being angry and very frustrated, because this Jesus thing just never seems like it's going to end, And besides being frightened, Caiaphas, the high priest, and those with him were also filled with what? Indignation, which in the Greek is what? Envy. They were full of jealousy, just as they had been envious of the popularity of Jesus with the masses of people. Now, too, they were envious of the growing popularity of his apostles. Like I said, it's like Jesus times 12. And the people are really, you know flocking to them. Who wouldn't if you can take their, your sick and your demon possessed to them and they can be healed? So they're envious of the apostles just as they had been envious of Jesus. And as they had been envious of Jesus's power in that he was able to perform so many miracles, now they're likewise envious of the apostles' power to perform miracles. In their thinking, it's like, why didn't God give them, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, why didn't God give them that kind of power? Why couldn't they go out and heal people and cleanse lepers and raise the dead and um, make the lame to walk and all kinds of things? Why couldn't they do it? And then they would be popular because all the people would be following them. And they weren't very popular with the people, were they? So they are jealous. When Caiaphas and Annas' father-in-law and the rest of the council members simply could not take the disobedience, the direct disobedience of the apostles anymore... And the growth of their following, you know, they'd had it up to here. He rose up. He and the Sadducees, it says, rose up, and they had the twelve arrested and imprisoned to be brought before them the following day. However, as they gathered, we know this because we studied this last week, but as they all gathered in the morning to have their uh, session and bring their prisoners before them and hopefully put an end once and for all to this growing Jesus issue. They soon heard that there had been, just as there had been, an empty tomb. Now there was what? An empty prison. It's like, Carol, it's like, oi vey. <laughs> Here we go again. How on earth did 12 men and not even in resurrected bodies. Twelve blood, 
if flesh and, and bone, blood, you know, real men get out of a safely, securely locked prison past the prison guards without the guards noticing? How did they unlock and then lock back up prison doors without even having the keys? The keys were still hanging on the guards. <laughs> do you think... Do you think that Caiaphas and the others figured, when they thought this through, that it had to have taken a miracle? They had been hearing and seeing, actually, a lot of miracles lately. I am sure that they knew that this also involved a miracle. What is interesting is that after the 12 are rearrested and brought before Caiaphas and the council, Caiaphas does not ask them how they got out of prison. You know why he doesn't ask them? He doesn't want to know. Because likely it involved a supernatural being. <laughs> and the Sadducees did not believe in supernatural beings. They didn't believe in angelic realm at all. Demons either. Well, when God sent the angel to release the men from prison, do you realize when you think that through? Now remember last week I asked you a question. I said, why did Jesus send an angel to release him from prison if he knew, which he did, of course, that they were just going to be rearrested? Why did he even bother doing that? Well, the reason is he sent the angel as a tremendous confirmation uh, to the men in prison of the rightness of their position to have obeyed God rather than men. Think about it. They're in prison. And maybe among themselves they're, they're waffling. Maybe among themselves they're saying, you know, how can we help our Lord by fulfilling his great commission? How can we help build his church when all 12 of us are in prison? Maybe we shouldn't have been quite so bold by going right into the temple to preach. Out in public, maybe we should have gone underground. Maybe we shouldn't, you know. So maybe, you know, I, I think they're probably a little bit wondering. And so what does God do? To confirm to them that they did the right thing, he sends them an angel. And not only the presence of the angel and the release from prison, but the angel's message was a confirmation that they had done the right thing. Because what does the angel tell them to do? Exactly what they had been doing. Go, stand, and stand where? In, in houses underground? No, in the temple. And speak all the words of life, which is, of course is speak about Christ. Because he is life. He's what life is all about. So wasn't that, you know, the angel was giving a message from who? The resurrected Lord. He was his messenger. So wasn't that a, a direct divine command to disobey the council? Yes, it was. Do you also see how the miraculous escape of the prisoners served as an object lesson to the Sanhedrin council itself? The whole thing was divinely designed to make a point to the enemies of, of Christ. It was an object lesson to the high court of Israel to tell them that they were fighting against God. On my way here this morning, I passed a church up the road, and on the marquee it said, your, hands are too sh your arms are too short to fight against God. I thought, I can use that. <laughs> so he was telling these Sanhedrin council members, your arms are too short to fight against me. Just as when they had killed Jesus and God raised him back to life, that was an object lesson to these men that they were fighting God himself. By the supernatural release of the 12 from prison, the Lord was telling Caiaphas and his crowd he was saying, basically, you may think that these men are yours to threaten and yours to command, but I have news for you. They are my servants, and you could have no power at all against them unless it was given to you from me. Doesn't that remind you of what Jesus said to Pilate? As Pilate stood before him and said, you know, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have power? 
And what did Jesus say? You would have no power whatsoever unless it was given you from above. Yet the object lesson of the escape of the prisoners didn't get through, did it? I mean, those guys had some thick skulls. It did not get through the callous, corrupt heart of Caiaphas and the rest of them. Because when we ended our last lesson, he had just asked the returned prisoners. They escaped. They went to the temple. And then, you know, somebody came running in and says, oh, guess what? It's not going to be hard to find them. They're there where they were before when we arrested them. They're in the temple speaking that name that we forbid them to to speak, and so they bring him back before the council, and Caiaphas asks his angry, accusatory, is that how you say it? Accusatory? Whatever. Question. And here it is. Did, it's in verse 28. Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Didn't we tell you not to teach in the name? And, and look, behold, you have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine about this name, this resurrected one. That's good news, that they filled Jerusalem with that, isn't it? They're, they're really getting through. And then he said, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Of course, not one of those supposed reasons for their arrest, why they had imprisoned them, not one of those reasons held any water. It was not a criminal activity to... to um, teach the doctrine of resurrection. That wasn't worthy of being thrown in prison because if it had been, who else would be in prison? Half of the Sanhedrin council, all the Pharisees, because they did believe in resurrection. And most of Israel would be thrown in prison. And neither was it a reason to throw them in prison to teach the resurrection of the Messiah. Especially when you have all kinds of scripture, Old Testament scripture to back it up, which is exactly what Peter had been doing in every one of his sermons. Also, the great irony of uh, Caiaphas's accusation that the apostles were trying to bring Jesus' blood upon them, upon the council, is that they were already under the judgment of God for just that. They were guilty of the shed blood of Jesus, even though it wasn't God's divine plan. They were guilty. They were responsible for his death. They will be held accountable for, for killing him. And uh, actually, they themselves had taken full responsibility for that, hadn't they? When they said to Pilate, his blood be on us. And I wish they'd ended right there. But they said, and our children. As with regard to Caiaphas's first indictment, which was that they had not obeyed their previous command to neither speak or teach in this name, the fact of the matter is, as I mentioned earlier, that Peter and John had not gotten an answer from these judges of Israel as to whether it was right for them to obey God or them. Remember, they hadn't gotten an answer. And basically they told them, though, well, we cannot obey you because we have to obey God, and then they dismissed them. So they knew when they dismissed them that first time that they were going to go right out and do exactly what they had threatened them not to do. They knew they would disobey them because they told them they would disobey them. Right? You know, if we could have taken a heart x-ray, cat scan or whatever, of, of Caiaphas's heart and the fellow, his fellow councilmen, if we could have taken an x-ray of their hearts, we would find that they were really frustrated. Of course, I'm being, you know, this doesn't really show up on an x-ray. <laughs> but if we could look with spiritual eyes into their heart, we would see they were really, really frustrated. They were very envious. They were fearful. They were fearful of losing their positions of power and prestige over the people. They were angry. They had no compassion. They were compassionless men, by and large. And what else? They were guilt-ridden. They were guilt-ridden because they, um, they knew that they had put to death an innocent man. They knew it. They connived the whole thing, didn't they? They knew absolutely nothing about the fear of the Lord. So as wise as they thought themselves to be, they did not even have the beginning of knowledge, did they? Don't you see that to be so true in our world today? There are many, many, especially in the media, in Washington, and all over, many 
what you would call worldly wise people. I mean, they have vocabularies and they're just so smart and they're so knowledgeable on this subject and that subject, etc., etc. But they don't even have, in God's eyes, the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. What are they? They're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Which is so simple, even a three-year-old can understand it. So now, with the reply of the defendants, which we're going to look at, first part of our outline as we look at verses 29 to 32, the reply of the, uh, the 12 apostles to the indictment by Caiaphas, it becomes evident to us very quickly that the ones who are really standing on trial that day before holy God were the council members and not the apostles. It also becomes evident that we are still on this big issue of whether it's right to obey God or men when the two come into conflict. The Lord had answered that, self, that question himself. Since the council hadn't, the Lord had answered that question by the mighty miracles that he was performing through his men. He had also answered that question by the angel he sent to release them from prison and by the angel's message to them. And now he was going to give the council members a very direct answer to that question by the Holy Spirit's words of wisdom that were put into the mouth of the apostles. All right, so let's look at their reply. The defendant's reply, verses 29 to 32 of Acts chapter 5. It says, <clears throat> Then Peter and the other apostles answered. Now, I don't know if they had practiced this in prison the night before or what, you know, how they all did this together. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sure Peter was the spokesman, but obviously they were all agreeing with Peter. And they probably, you know, all put in, a word or two, but it says that they all answered in harmony, we ought to obey God rather than men. There it is. There's the principle. There's the spiritual principle. The judges wouldn't say it, so the apostles did. The Holy Spirit, through the apostles, did. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey. You guys? No. To them that obey him, that obey God. The answer here of the apostles sets for the entire church, both back then and yet still today, an important principle, which is, we could all say it together, all right? Let's say it together like the apostles did. We ought to obey God rather than men. It may cost us a great deal to do so, but the spirit-filled apostles made it clear as it could possibly be that the Supreme Court of Heaven has higher jurisdiction on earth than a group of men who formed at that time what was basically the Supreme Court of Israel, a corrupt Supreme Court. Do we sort of have a, a corrupt Supreme Court today? Yes, we do. They said in complete unity, we ought to obey God rather than men. And in saying that, these men were telling the Sanhedrin that there was simply nothing really more to be said about their disobedience to their God-contradicting command not to speak any more about Jesus. Talk about a bold reply. Was that bold? That was real. Are these the same guys we studied in the Gospels? It's just like, wow. You know, I would say, you know, some people have a problem with Jesus. And, oh, did he really live? Of course he did. He's a historical figure. But you'll run across people and say, well, I don't know if he really was even a person. Maybe it's all a myth. And I don't really know that he rose from the dead. Well, okay. What about these men? Hmm? How do you explain the changed life of these men? 
who were so cowardly and fearful and weeping and crying and just despondent and ready to go back to their former lives and then all of a sudden, whammo, they're standing before the Supreme Court with this kind of boldness. It's, it's just, there's no other answer except they saw Christ resurrected. <clears throat> all right, so that was bold. Um, but then they really put the shoe on the other foot when they indicted the council. You know, the council had just indicted them with things that didn't hold any water. But now they, they turn around and they point the finger at the council and they accuse them of, a, of having committed the greatest crime in all history. What had they done? They had sinned against the God of their fathers when they slew Jesus and hung him on a tree. It doesn't get any worse than that, killing God's son. How else had God provided an object lesson to make it evident that when there is conflict from man's opposition to him, he always overrules? Well, here was the object lesson he had given, not only to that Sanhedrin council, but really to the whole world. They killed his son, but what did he do? He raised him up. <clears throat> and then, not only did he raise him up bodily on earth, 40 days, but then he exalted him to sit upon his right hand, the throne of heaven, where yet today he sits as both prince and savior. And the apostles say, we are his witnesses of these things, as is also the Holy Spirit. How is the whole, well, you see, remember when Jesus said to them, it's expedient that I go away? I have to go away, guys, because if I don't go, if I don't leave you, if I don't return to my Father in heaven, I cannot send the Comforter. <clears throat> so when the Comforter came, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, it was proof, it was proof that Jesus was where he said he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, the apostles could only see him until the clouds covered, you know. They couldn't see the rest of the ascension. But the, the proof that he did ascend and sat down at his Father's right hand was the sending of the Holy Spirit. So not only are the apostles witnesses of these things, so too is the Holy Ghost. And did you notice how they did mention obedience to God? <clears throat> it was right for them. <coughs> no, I'm all right. Uh, it was, they were saying it was right for them to have obeyed God rather than them. And the evidence of that truth was the gift of the Holy Spirit within, within them, the apostles. And the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within them was evidenced by the fact that they were performing all these signs and wonders and miracles. Um, just on the first day of the church, they could speak every kind of language, Right? Even dialects, that was evidence. Their escape from prison was evidence that it had been better for them to write, for them to obey God. And the wisdom of their words, these were ignorant, unlearned men, right? How did they have such wisdom? That was evidence of the Holy Spirit within them. To say nothing, of course, of their incredible boldness, that too was evidence of the Holy Spirit within them. Basically, they were saying to this council, you guys took Jesus and you disgraced him. But God has crowned him with honor. And should we not honor who God honors? Absolutely. And then, after such a direct accusation, they turned to grace, which is what every good pastor should do, right? Make the people uncomfortable, but then give them the invitation, the free gift of eternal life. Peter and the others graciously tell these evil enemies of Jesus why God had allowed them to do what they did to his son. It was to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, on God's side of the conflict with his enemies, his greatest desire is not to destroy them, but to do what? To save them, to see them save. He is really what we could call a benevolent antagonist. As the spiritual leaders of Israel and on the behalf of the whole nation, because this is the way it goes, as 
as goes the leaders, so goes the nation, which is scary. But that's the way it goes for nations. Now, for individuals within those nations, of course, individuals can go different ways. But as go the leaders, that's how goes the nation. So uh, these spiritual leaders of, of Israel, on behalf of the corporate nation, needed to repent. And they needed to pay, pay, put their faith in, in the one who willingly became the curse of sin for their sins. You see, they thought that they had forever discredited him, discredited him from being the Messiah because of the fact that they had the Romans kill him, which they knew would entail hanging him from a tree, which according to Deuteronomy, everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. So he can't be the Messiah because he's cursed, right? That's proof. They did not, didn't understand that he willingly became the curse of sin for them, for all of us. If they would just put their faith in him, if they would repent and put their faith in him, if they would be obedient to him, then they too would know forgiveness. And their obedience in following him and believing in him would result in them also receiving who? The Holy Spirit. They could have also received the Holy Spirit. What this was was really a plea by the Holy Spirit for the Council of Israel to reverse their rejection of Jesus Christ. They represent the nation. It was one of their last opportunities. Do you see how long-suffering God has been? Opportunity after opportunity. This is going to be one of their last opportunities to repent of what they had done and turn to Jesus as their Messiah. Peter was passionately appealing to them by bluntly telling them that they were now dealing not just with men, they were dealing with the Holy Spirit. So the trial had completely turned upside down, hadn't it? So the council now stood accused. And who was the judge? The Holy Spirit was the judge. How would the council plead? Would they plead guilty and be completely set free and history would be completely different? Because the Lord would have returned and set up his kingdom way back then. Would they plead guilty or would they plead not guilty? Well, here's what they did. Their hearts said, guilty. We are guilty. But their flesh said, Let's kill them. Kill the messengers. Let's look at that. This is what I call the devilish rage. Verse 33. When they heard that, what they had just had was a presentation of the gospel, okay? When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. You see what I mean? Their hearts said guilty, but their flesh said, get rid of them. The effect of the Spirit-inspired, bold presentation of the gospel message on this council of men is that they were cut to the heart. How would we say that? Cut to the quick. Cut. They were cut to the quick. And the Greek word for, for cut to the heart, quick, whatever it is, is diaprio. Diaprio. That literally means sawn through. Two pieces. Dia is the Greek word for two. You want me to count to 10 in Greek? So that all my Greek school was worth something? Ena, dia, tria, tessera, pendi, exi, epta, octo, enya, deca. Thank you, Mom, for sending me to Greek school. The only other time that the word diaprio appears in the New Testament, very interestingly, turn a page over to 754, Acts 754, which again describes the effect of, of the, a sermon on this same council, these same men, after the sermon given by Stephen. Now this, Stephen's sermon is going to be their last opportunity to repent as a nation. But although it says they were cut to the heart, what did they do? How did they respond? They gnashed their teeth in anger against Stephen. Now, in both cases where this word appears, only those two cases, they hardened their hearts against the truth and responded with rage. In Stephen's case, what did they do? They stoned him to death. 
They got rid of him. In this case, they wanted to slay all 12 of the apostles. They wanted to take them out and stone them to death. But the Lord, in his divine providence, used a man to intervene. And he used one of their own, one of their own council members, a very highly respected Pharisee, a doctor of the law, he's called. And what is his name? Gamaliel. Let's look at the doctor's reasoning, verses 34 to 39. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law had in reputation among all the people. He was highly esteemed by all the Jewish people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. He stood up. This guy knew he had authority. He knew he had everybody's respect. He was a Pharisee, but he even had the respect of the Sadducees. And he stands up and he gives a command. Put the apostles out so we can have a little bit of a discussion here. And he knew he had authority and he knew they would obey him, so they put the apostles out. And then verse 35, he says to them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Be careful what you're going to do to these men. Part of him is probably fearing that if they, they killed these apostles, what might the people do to them? He says, now here's his reasoning. Verse 36, for before these days rose up Thutis boasting himself to be somebody, <laughs> to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, Thutis was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. That didn't come to anything. And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of much of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught, come to nothing. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Gamaliel was a grandson of the very famous Rabbi Hillel, who had died back in 10 AD. He had started a school called the School of Hillel. And uh, Gamaliel started out famous when he was born because he was that guy's grandson, right? He was also the teacher of a man who we know very well. Saul of Tarsus. And at this very time that this is taking place, Saul is one of Gamaliel's disciples there in Jerusalem. Saul is in Jerusalem. We know because in two more chapters, he's standing there with the coats as they're stoning Stephen to death. All right? So Gamaliel has, you know, he's the one teaching Saul. That's important. He was a very well-respected man, so much so that even the high priests... Caiaphas and Annas, both of them, and the Sadducees, listened to his counsel to restrain their action toward the apostles. As I said, he commanded the prisoners and, and they listened to him. He was used by God in this situation to intervene on behalf of the lives of his apostles. Now, if Gamaliel hadn't been used, God would have used something else because it's too early in the church for his apostles to all perish, all 12 of them, you know? They couldn't. God would have intervened with an angel or whatever. But in this circumstance, he used this man, Gamaliel. And everybody, you know, says how wonderful Gamaliel, and you'll read commentaries, and they say, yes, he spoke for God and all this and that. But let me tell you something. When you leave here today, you might have a little bit different perspective on Gamaliel. I certainly did after I studied all this. He missed the mark in some very critical ways. As such a respected scholar of the scriptures, as a council member, one of the 70, and a Pharisee who not only did believe in resurrection, even though they didn't believe it was till the end of you know, history, and it'd be a resurrection of the dead, and, you know, the, the just and the unjust. He did believe in resurrection. He believed in the spiritual realm. He believed in the inspiration of the entire Old Testament scripture, which the Sadducees didn't. 
They only really felt the books of Moses were worth studying, which is ironic because those five books are full of angels. <laughs> but anyway, um, so this man, I mean, he had it right. He was a conservative of his day, but, you know, the Pharisees got all hung up in tradition and rituals, didn't they? And the letter of the law, and they became legalists. But as a respected scholar, a council member, a Pharisee, it would have been very wise for him to see, you know, when he stood up, he should, he should have said, let us all seriously consider and pray about the abundant evidence regarding Jesus as Messiah. Let's consider this. Let's search the scriptures. If he, like both the Pharisee Nicodemus and one of his fellow council members named Joseph of Arimathea, if he had honestly searched the scriptures and the apostles could have easily supplied him with some really critical scriptures, he could have been used to perhaps save the whole direction of Israel. This one man, this one powerful man. What if instead of having wrongly compared Jesus to some previous zealous Jews named Thutis and Judas of Galilee, nobody's ever heard of them, really, unless you read the Bible, never heard of them, He's comparing Jesus, the Son of God, to these two guys? If instead of doing that, he had suggested that they look at the scriptures in light of Jesus' life, it might have been completely different for Israel. After all, Thutis and Judas of Galilee had not been born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, as Micah 5.2 had said, the Messiah would be born. And also, uh, they did not come from the direct bloodline and the direct royal line of King David, as Jesus did, bloodline his mother Mary, throne line his father, stepfather uh, Joseph, nor had they performed all kinds of fantastic miracles. Did Thutis and Judas of Galilee perform, raise the dead, heal the lepers, all the kind of things that Jesus did? No, no. What if Gamaliel had suggested to the council that they all look seriously into the scripture to see if Jesus could possibly be their long-awaited Messiah and that they had made a mistake in having put him to death? After all, none of Thutis's 400 followers nor Judas of, uh, uh, Judas of Galilee's followers had ever performed the abundance of signs and wonders and healings that Jesus's apostles were performing, Right? To associate Jesus with two former rebels was the indicator that Gamaliel had already dismissed Jesus without prayerful and honest evaluation. We know that he continued that way because he wrote a prayer before he died that condemned Christians. And he could, just think of the impact he could have had on Saul of Tarsus. Saul wouldn't have to be, have wrecked havoc on the church if Gamaliel had searched the scriptures with him. See what I'm saying? I mean, it would have just changed everything. Of course, God's in control. But <clears throat> he may, this man may have been more cool-headed than the rest of them, guaranteed. Yes, he was more cool-headed and he was more moderate, uh, especially than the Sadducees. But he was just as guilty as all of them, he obviously had consented to the death of Jesus with the others on the council when they condemned Jesus through a series of illegal trials, and he certainly is not repentant here. What was his counsel in one word? His counsel was patience, patience. He was essentially telling the members of the Sanhedrin to settle down. Don't do anything rash. Don't do anything in your anger. Troublemakers like Thutis and Judas of Galilee, you know, they come and go. History repeats itself. I'm sorry, it doesn't always. There was a big exception when Jesus came from heaven to die for the sins of mankind. History does not always repeat itself in this special case, right? But his, his advice is wait long enough, you know, and this will eventually run its course and it will prove to be nothing. However, if this Jesus craze does, you know, if it does happen to be of God, then there is nothing you can possibly do about it. You'd be fighting against God. Now, that's true, isn't it? That's absolutely true. While it's true that if something is of God, there is nothing ultimately that man can do to stop it, yet 
in the short term of things, for individuals living at various times in history, things may get very, very bad. Even to the point where it looks like, it looks like the work of God has just about been completely snuffed out. Has history shown that to be true? It has. In the dark ages, the, the candlestick was just about completely removed from this world. But God always has his remnant, doesn't he? But sometimes it can look very, very gloomy. Um, the, the, uh, the Jews that were carried off into Babylon for 70 years, think of some of them. They were born and died in Babylon. Didn't it look, wouldn't it have looked to them like the work of God was snuffed out? Jerusalem lay in ruins? It looked like maybe the works of man had superseded the work of God. So in short term, sometimes it looks like the works of men have conquered over the work of God. But ultimately, ultimately, there will be vindications. Vindication, singular. Whatever is of God in this world will, in the long run, succeed. God's word will not return unto him void, no matter what it looks like at various times in, in, in history. In the tribulation, it's going to look really pretty bad too, isn't it? I feel like we're there. Um, but every, every one of God's purposes will be accomplished. What he has determined and what he has decreed will take place. Remember what he, Psalm 2, what, he, what he's doing all this time is the rulers and the kings are mounting up against him and trying to cast his bands from them. What is he doing in heaven? He's looking down in laughter and derision. Because he says, for all your deeds, I yet will set my king on my holy Mount Zion. It is going to happen. What he has decreed will take place. And whatever was built by man and demonically influenced error will be destroyed. And I wish that day was coming soon. And I think it is. But in the meantime, the works of men can be very, very strong. And they can go on even for centuries. Look at Islam. Has it gone on for a long time? And Buddhism and all kinds of cults and religions, long time. The works of men under the influence of the usurper prince of this world, Satan, have not just come to naught with a little patience, unfortunately. So while what Gamaliel said is ultimately true, it is not always true in the immediate sense. The biggest error, however, the biggest error of Gamaliel's counsel was that he was encouraging a position of neutrality when it came to Jesus. The spirit, through the apostles, had just presented to these men, these important men, the gospel. And that gospel, just like the two-edged sword that it is, it cut them to the heart, didn't it? It pierced right through. That's what the gospel can do, because it's got power. But it also infuriated them. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and encountered both of those things? <laughs> yes, I have. You know, you can tell they've been cut to the heart, but they react with fury. I've had shoe thrown at me. I've had doors slammed in my face. Gamaliel's advice was, let's just wait and see what comes of this. That was not good enough. They needed, at that time, they needed to make a, left, uh, a life or death decision. And not about the apostles. I'm talking about themselves. They needed to make a life or death decision for them and for the whole nation of Israel. Remember what Jesus said? He said, he that is not with me is against me. You can't take neutral ground with Jesus. Can you? There's either the broad road that leads to destruction or there's the narrow road that leads to life and you're born on the broad road. There's no neutrality when it comes to him. Sadly, instead of considering the possibility of the truth in what the disciples were saying, Gamaliel ended the whole matter by discussing some small-time insurrectionists. If he had been half the great man that he was esteemed to be, he should never have consented to allowing an innocent man to die in the first place through those illegal trials. And he should never 
have consented to what the council decided to do next with the 12 apostles. Let's look at that. The departing reward, 40 and 41. And to him they agreed. They agreed to his council. And when they had called the apostles, they brought him back before the, the, the council session. When they called the apostles, and what did they do next? And beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, sad and miserable and in pain and agony and despairing, weeping. Is that what it says? No, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I am telling you, these are not the same men that they used to be. This is just incredible. Verse 40, we find that Gamaliel had succeeded in calming the council from their rage in wanting to stone to death the twelve, you know, slay them. They agreed with his idea to basically wait and see what a little time would do with this Jesus movement. You know, by the fact that we're here today, what have we proven? <laughs> it was of God indeed. However, before they simply let their prisoners go, they wanted to vent. They wanted to vent some of their anger and frustration and jealousy by having each and every one of them, including young John, who was only a teenager, beaten. And then to assert their power, once more they commanded them to no more speak or teach in the name of Jesus, you know. And then they let him go. The beating that each and every one of the 12 apostles suffered at this time was the 39 strokes of flogging, which was allowed by the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25.3, as punishment for wicked men, short of death. You know, they weren't wicked enough to be put to death just wicked enough to get, have a serious warning and be flogged 39 times. Of course, it was allowed 40, but just in case they miscounted, they would stop at 39. Now, the problem with that is that these men were not wicked. You know, only wicked ones were supposed to be flogged. These men were not wicked. They were obeying God. Now, here, Luke does not, you almost miss it because it's just, at, and, beat, and beaten. They were beaten. That's it. One word. As usual, Luke does not describe for us any of the suffering that these men encountered. Now, the beating, I have to say, the beating of the Jews was not nearly as horrific as the scourging of the Romans. You know, the Romans used what was called a scorpion. It had a short wooden handle, and attached to the handle were um, leather straps. And on the end of the leather straps, what did they tie? pieces of sharp bone and metal. And there were two Roman soldiers that would inflict the penalty on the victim. They would strip the victim completely naked. The Jews only did the upper half. But they would have them with their hands up or leaning over a wall, and there'd be two Roman soldiers. One would lash the whip, and then as soon as he was finished, the other one, then the other one, and the other one. And they did not stop necessarily at any number. They just kept going. And as we studied Jesus, his, his scourging, the flesh would be torn, open, bloody, you know, organs exposed, and most people didn't even survive. A lot of people didn't even survive the scourging. And that's what they would do before they hung them on the cross for crucifixion. And then as they're trying to push up and down to breathe on the cross, that rugged wood is scraping against their back, and it was just horrific. The Jews' flogging was not that bad because they did not, they used either a rod or a whip, but not with the metal pieces of bone, etc., on it. And they did stop at 39, and there was only one man inflicting the punishment, and it was just the upper half of the body. So it wasn't as bad, but still, it was incredibly painful. Can you imagine? 39, think of that, 39, 1, 2, 3, 4, you know, all the way to 39 times on, in the same place on your back. So after the beating, they would be, they'd be in a whole lot of pain. It would take weeks to get over that. Maybe some of them felt that for the rest of their lives. Who knows what it did to their backs. But they would be swollen, they would be bruised, they would probably maybe have ribs broken, bloody. Um, it, it, was, it still was not, was not good. And they would be bowed down, maybe some of them helping the others, you know, just to, to walk out of there. They were aching. They were in aching agony physically. Oh, and besides that, they would put up public notice of whoever they had flogged. It was to further shame the people who they had flogged. So they'd put up public notice and they would list all their names, you know, Peter, James, Andrew, John, all of them. They'd be up there to further shame them. 
They, they thought to shame them for preaching in the name of Jesus, and they also thought in doing that to shame the people for listening to them, to shame them for listening to preachers who had just been flogged. You get it? However, when the council members, after the beating, you know, they didn't do it. They had people that did it for them. When they brought the 12 men back into the chamber, what do you think that the council members saw on the faces of these 12 men? Tears and agony and weeping and crying and, oh, we're so sorry. We're just so sorry. We will never do it again. That was terrible. We'll never speak the name of Jesus again. Is that what they saw? <laughs> no, that is not at all what they saw. They saw beaming, joyous faces. They saw silly grins all over the faces of these men. And I am sure those guys were going, oh, praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you counted me worthy to suffer for you. I mean, they were just so full of joy. And don't, can't you just imagine how that got under the skin of these council members? What we're told in verse 41 is absolutely simply amazing. The apostles had just been unjustly arrested, imprisoned, rearrested, and then scourged. But instead of being sour about it, instead of complaining to God, how, God, Lord, how could you do this to us? This isn't fair. We didn't sign up for this. Instead of complaining about the injustice of it all or angrily, you know, talking back to the council members, spitting on them or whatever, you know, calling, cussing at them like Peter had done in the garden, instead of any, showing any bitterness at all, they are rejoicing with real happiness and joy. That is supernatural. To endure punishment like that just to endure it. I was a kid, you know, I'd get spankings. <laughs> Beatings, actually. But, I, I, you know, you just crunch up and you would endure it, right? That's stoicism. But what we have here, when you rejoice for your sufferings, for Christ's name's sake, that is the supernatural blessing of the Christian. This was not a perverted martyr's complex that controlled their spirit. This was the truth of the Lord's beatitude. Blessed are ye which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. These men were happy to, to, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Not at all to the extent that the Lord suffered, but to even experience some of it. You could not make these men discouraged. You could not make them despairing or saddened or doubting like Thomas. You could not make them like that no matter what. Now, once upon a time, that had been the situation, but not anymore. Not anymore. They knew in whom they believed, and they were persuaded, utterly persuaded, by his resurrection and his spirit living within them. And they saw their beating. They saw their beating as a reward from the Lord himself. You know, they, it was an honor to them to be so dishonored for Christ. They, they were thrilled that just like the prophets of old, they, he counted them worthy to suffer shame for his name. I'm teary-eyed because I'm thinking of all the Christians in the world today being martyred. There, you know, there's going to be thousands of people, maybe even today, killed in that city that ISIS has just taken over, and we're doing nothing about it. Nothing. We're just sitting here doing nothing about it. When good men, women do nothing, that's evil. That is evil. I think of all the women that are going to be raped and the children beheaded and all that's going to go on. And I'm not saying those people in that city are Christian, but still, they're people, they're human beings made in the likeness of God. I just finished reading Killing Patton and it just reminds me of what people did when Hitler was slaughtering the Jews. People, good people did nothing. I just wish there was something we could do. We can pray. We need to be praying. Is it right to obey God rather than men when the two conflict? Is it? Absolutely. The answer is yes, but you cannot choose the consequences. You cannot choose them. If God wants you in prison like that Iranian pastor who's still in prison today, 
If he wants you in prison, you'll be in prison. If he wants you to get out of prison, piece of cake. He can get you out of prison. But if he leaves you in prison, you can guarantee he has a reason for it. You know the Apostle Paul spent four years of unconfined imprisonment in Caesarea and Rome. Did God have a purpose for him being in prison? Yeah, every, everybody ever <laughs> guarded Paul, got saved. <laughs> Until the whole Praetorium Guard there in Rome was saved. Um, and also, remember, he wrote four epistles in our New Testament from prison. You can confine the man, but you cannot confine the spirit. Um, <clears throat> and where was I? Let's see. So God has his mysterious ways. We don't know. We don't always know what he's doing, but we know he's at work. And the fact that you may lose your job because you're a Christian, the fact that you might be divided from family members, as I have suffered in my life, because of being a Christian, or not receive a promotion because you're a little goody-two-shoes, you know, <laughs> or um, be, uh, per prosecuted or slandered or falsely slewed, uh, slewed, <laughs> sued. <laughs> you could be falsely slewed, too. <laughs> or even killed. It, you know, it may come to that in this country. It may come to that. Um... All right, I won't say that, but it may come to that. Killed for being a Christian. Even if churches all over Europe are being turned into mosques, which is exactly what is happening and could very well happen here if we don't speak up and do something, all of that, even if Christians are almost entirely wiped out of nation after nation, all of that, all of that is not an indication that Jesus Christ is not of God. Because he is God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the disciples resolve all this. I have no idea what time it is, but I got one verse. Let's just read it. That's all I'll do. I'll read it, okay? Because it says it all. What did they do after their beating and after their release? Did they return, run, run, run back to Galilee and go back to fishing? Did they go secretly into underground churches? So they would never suffer a beating before and anymore? Or did they say, ah, the eternal is not worth the present suffering and just give up the whole thing? No, here's what they did. Verse 42. And daily, I love that, daily, where? In the temple and in every house. They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. How can you not? magnify those men. How can you not highly esteem those men? Wow, I love it. The principle is this. We ought to obey God rather than men, and if doing so results in persecution, Peter gives us some further advice, which, by the way, is a lot better than the advice given by Gamaliel, and here it is. He wrote this in his first epistle. Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory through the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forever. Amen. God bless you.